right, well, good morning. How's everyone doing? All right, well, we've spent these last four weeks at Crosswinds talking about questions, right? Questions that we can and should ask ourselves whenever we're making decisions, all in order to steer us away from regret. But, and I think we can all agree, if you've been on this journey with us, these questions aren't easy. They're not easy to ask, they're not easy to answer. And these past weeks here, our teachers have been kind of, kind of nudging us towards some some really difficult questions. Questions like, am I being honest with myself? Or, or, or what is the wise thing to do in this particular situation? And all this talk of questions makes me think of my kids. I have two daughters. Um, they're really cute. Uh, that's Atlee. Uh, she's eight. And, and next to her on the left is Emmy. Emmy uh, just turned five. And um, Emmy is starting kindergarten this week. Yeah, I know, which is exciting, and it's uh, horrifying all at the same time. And, and it's horrifying because Emmy asks questions that I can't always answer. And if you've ever been a, a parent or if you've spent time with a younger child, you've been on the receiving end of some of these questions. Like the other day, uh, we were driving somewhere, and here's what I hear from the back seat. Dad, what's blood made out of? That's a weird question, right? But here's the problem. I'm not smart enough to answer that question. So I have to improvise a little bit, maybe stall for time. Well, Emmy, that's a very interesting question. Let's, uh, let's figure it out together. Like, right? Like if somehow me and my child both put our heads together, we, we together can crack this complicated scientific question. Weird questions. Recently, the questions have gotten a little bit deeper. And the answer I have to give isn't going to put a neat cap on it. It's not going to wrap everything up in a neat bow. Because some questions require deeper answers, and those answers change things. Let me tell you something that, that Emmy asked me the other day. Okay, both my girls love Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. She rules. And we listen to her songs in the car. And there's a very popular song of hers that says this, I was a scarlet letter. So, so what did Emmy ask me in the car the other day? Dad, what is a scarlet letter? Okay, now, now quick aside. If you don't remember freshman English, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a book called the Scarlet Letter. It took place in Puritanical 1640, and it tells the story of a woman who conceives a daughter through an affair. And since she refuses to reveal who, who fathered her child, the townspeople expose her to, to public humiliation, and she's made to wear an embroidered scarlet A, A for adultery, for the rest of her life. Scandalous. So the term scarlet letter has come to mean a public visible mark that represents some sort of shame or guilt. And now my five-year-old wants me to explain all of that. <laughs> so I did what any good dad would do. I read her the scarlet letter. She's going to be the most intense kindergartner ever. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. Here's what I actually did. I took the coward's way out, and I said, oh, let's talk about that later. Because now it's time for us to go buy candy. You see, I, I redirected us. But please don't judge me. Um, 
But, but, but the reason I did that is this. I can't just explain what a scarlet letter is to a kindergartner, because I will also have to explain what adultery means. And now attitudes towards adultery have changed some in the past centuries. And I'll probably have to dip into like gender dynamics and misogyny and, and double standards between men and women back in the day. And finally, I'll have to like land the plane on what Taylor Swift means when she refers to herself <laughs> as a scarlet letter. I just don't have it in me for that. But I, also, I don't think my five-year-old has it in her to understand this. Like she won't be ready for that at least until like third grade. <laughs> and that brings me to something that I think we've all recognized dur during this past series about these questions. And it's this, check this out. Questions lead to answers, answers lead to wisdom. Questions lead to answers, answers lead to wisdom. Uh, okay, uh, there's like one more piece to this, but, but let's just, let's hold it here for a bit. Because if we're ready for, for that wisdom that, that the questions we're asking are going to bring, then that's a good thing. That's great. Sometimes we're not. Because there's a third part to this idea we're unpacking, and it's this. Wisdom leads to action. Oh, wisdom leads to action. See, when we learn something new, I don't have to tell you this, our world has to expand to make room for this new thing. And that expansion almost always requires growth from us. It requires action. And action's tricky to define. Yeah, and it's different for all of us, it, depending on who we are and, and how we're wired and, and what this new wisdom brings. Like, like if my five-year-old finds out all about adultery and shame, she probably won't have to change her life or her thinking or her moral code in order to make room for this new wisdom, right? But she's gonna talk about it, right? And, and, and we as parents, we're gonna hear about it. We're gonna have some really uncomfortable conversations with her teacher and the other parents in her class. They might say, um, hey, keep your weird, intense kid who knows about affairs and stuff away from ours. So, so we've learned these past weeks how to ask, how to answer, and how to take action on some, some pretty tough questions. That brings us to our final question. All, right, all, all this past month, we've been pulling from this, this great book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. It's by Annie Stanley, and he's been giving us these, these fantastic questions that we can ask ourselves that can help us make decisions that lead us away from regret. And our final question might be the most terrifying of all, but, but it's also designed, like the other questions, to bring wisdom. And wisdom, like we said, is often the very thing we need to help us take action, to push us past our resistance. And I have to tell you about this question. There will be resistance with this one. This question that we're going to talk about today is going to be the question that you and I will be most tempted to not answer honestly. Okay, and, and if that's not enough, I gotta tell you one more thing about this question. It might not work. I'm like really selling this question, huh? <laughs> these other questions we've talked about these past four weeks, they're pretty much results guaranteed, often immediately 
but always eventually. But, but either way, they pay off, right? Asking and answering these other questions, honestly, the questions we've talked about these past four weeks, they will make your life better. But the fifth and final question is different because it will bring wisdom that will require action and you might still not get the result you want from it. So I ask it. Why ask this question? Because while these other questions have been about making your life better, this question is about making the world around you better. It's going to help you experience other people better, and it's going to help make the world around you more harmonious. So, so, so you got to trust me here. This is an important question. This is the relationship question. All right. Throughout time, there's been this thing called the golden rule. And you probably know about this. We learn when we're children, right? And it goes like this. Read it with me. Treat others as you would like others to treat you. Come on, read it with me. Treat others as you would like others to treat you. Here's how Jesus said it when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He said this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Did you catch that? Sums up the law and the prophets. According to Jesus, this simple rule sums up the 600 plus laws included in the ancient Hebrew law code. That's great news. If you haven't read ancient Hebrew law, if you've never been an Old Testament kind of person, not a fan of the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, you no longer have to. Jesus has told us, you don't need those. Here's the cliff notes. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. You should totally read those books, but... but but, but hold on to this passage because it's all going to come to fruition towards the end of Jesus' life on earth. His last night as a free man, before he's going to be captured, tried, and then executed by the state, he gathers his apostles and he says this, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All right. Let's stop here. Let's slow down. Because what Jesus is saying here is, is the basis for our fifth and final question. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus is now claiming to be the gold standard for love. He, he's saying, however you treat each other, however, however, you, you, however you, you, the love you show each other, measure it against how you've seen me act, how you've seen me treat you. And if you don't do that, they, they might not identify you with me. And I think it's good to, to examine this a little bit because these days we're going to hear this and we hear him say, as I have loved you, and then our minds with 2,000 plus years of like Christian history, we all grew up in the church, right? We probably think about something, right? We think about the cross. But, 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 but these disciples in this room, they didn't think about that. There's no cross yet. This demand Jesus is making is incredibly personal. Love as I have loved you. When I read this story, I like to, Imagine that the people around that table were calling, uh, thinking upon that the past three years they had spent with Jesus. I like to imagine each disciple there flashing back to a, a specific memory they have where their teacher, their Jesus, had loved them 
particularly well. Just one by one. Jesus calling them out of, a, out of a mundane life, identifying things about them that made them special, that made them worthy of the mantle they were carrying into the world. Keep in mind, they, they don't know what's coming next. They don't know that the, the next day, Jesus is going to literally give his life as the ultimate demonstration of love. All they have to work with in this moment is their life so far with Jesus. And he wraps it up with this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In short, here's the, the question he asked his disciples to, to begin asking of themselves whenever faced with a decision about personal relationships with each other and, and the people around them uh, that came into contact with every single day. And it's a relationship question. So here it is. You guys ready? What does love require of me? That's the question. Now, now can we talk about that word require for a little bit? Require. It's about obligation. Check this definition out. Require. To, to impose a compulsion or a command on. To, to instruct or expect someone to do something. Can, can I tell you about a time that, that something was required of me? When I was 14, I loved music, and so I collected CDs. Uh, I know, guys. This is the best picture I could find. Uh, <laughs> And I, I, I collected CDs. I loved music and I loved CDs. And I was a completist, which pretty much means I wanted to own every CD from every artist that I liked or thought was cool. And that led to me owning a lot of CDs. And I got to tell you, that sucks. Because if I'd come of age in the 60s or 70s, it would have been like vinyl records. And vinyl was so cool. But I was in the 90s. And CDs were it. And CDs are not cool. I mean, it's 2021, and my wife has already made me sell all my CDs. But, but back then, I spent a considerable amount of time in the 90s trying to figure out how to get my hands on every CD I could. And then one day, I'm 14, and I'm sitting in a waiting room of, of some sort, and I'm like just reading a magazine, and I come across... This. Ooh. Is that familiar to any of you guys? If you don't know, this was the Columbia House CD and tape club. This was pre-Spotify, pre-streaming. This was the way to bulk up your music collection. Here's how it worked. You would tape a penny to the order form, and they would just send you CDs. They would send you 8, 10, sometimes 12 CDs right to your house. That's a deal. And I'm like 14. I'm sitting here going, hold on. You're telling me I can get like this Nirvana CD and this Weezer CD and this The Cure CD all for one penny? I totally have a penny. <laughs> so I get my penny and I tape it to the order form and I send it off. And I had a year of enjoying all this great music sent directly to my house. But there was fine print. See that fine print? I didn't see the fine print. The fine print was this. You give us a penny, 
We'll send you a bunch of CDs, all right, all right? However, oh, we're not done here, buddy. You still need to purchase four, five, six more CDs from us at full price, and we will hunt you to the ends of the earth until you do it. By the way, full price is like $20 a CD. You have time, but we will come to collect. Be ready. Expect us. Now, that is fine print. But I'm 14. I'm not clocking this at all. I'm just looking forward to my bulk order of CDs, and everything's great, right? Until so my parents start getting these interesting letters from debt collection agencies. <laughs> Letting them know, informing them of a requirement that their dumb 14-year-old son was unaware of. And that's how they found out after a year of ignoring these requirements that their son owed about $150 to the Columbia House CDs and Tapes Club. And I spent a summer mowing lawns and clearing yards to, to pay my parents back for the CDs that I had unwittingly been required to purchase. And, and you know what, it, it, was, it was great because every time that summer my dad would walk by my room and if I had music going in my room, he'd like stop and hang in the doorway. He'd go, what's this? Is this Pearl Jam? Oh, yeah, it's Pearl Jam. It's good. You like it? It's good? Is it $20 good? <laughs> but, but we all face requirements in our lives, right? If you've ever had a child compete in a sport or, or take part like in a high school musical, you found out pretty fast there are requirements attached, fees, Time, you will become your kid's personal chauffeur for whatever game or, or swim meet or practice or, or rehearsal they're needed at. Requirements. If you got married and during your wedding you said vows, vows sort of like what we heard about earlier in today's service, whether you wrote them yourself or, or copied them from someone else, those vows, they are requirements. I am recognizing that this marriage we're about to enter into requires some things of me. Requirements. If you graduated college, you got a new job, and it was your first office job, there were probably some requirements you had to wrap your head around. Some of those were wardrobe-based. Oh, man, I got to find a good pair of pants and a few ties. And some were performance-based, right? I have to show up to this job. I have to focus. I cannot sleep at my desk. Requirements. And, and, and maybe some of those requirements were made clear up front. And maybe some you learned as you went. But, but, but check this out. Your lack of knowledge about requirements didn't mean you didn't have to do them. Right? You weren't, like, magically set free from these requirements. You and I, we learn about requirements for certain things and if we really want to be there, we adjust. You see, as humans in this world, we're going to have to navigate unavoidable complexities in every single relationship we have. And so this question, it's going to be the compass that's going to point you to where you need to go. And we need this. Because the Bible can be frustratingly silent on some things. Jesus' words speak. They fill the silence. 
And, and on other things, the Bible leaves gaps, right? It leaves room for, for personal interpretation. And as you grow in our faith, it's possible for us to also grow in our ability to maneuver ourselves into a lifestyle of picking and choosing who we love and how much we love them. And yet, here come these words of Jesus. And it says, your requirement, love. The gap, the, the loophole that you're planning on using to get out of loving others, it's been closed. All because Jesus gave us a, a standard that asks us to draw on our understanding of him and, and how much he loves us. So, uh, so what does this love look like? How can we find it? How can we tame it? How can we, how can we master it so it flows out of us without effort? Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, and he defined this love for us. And, and you've probably heard this passage before, but check this out. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I love this passage. It's great because it helps us find the answer to our question, what does love require of us? Here, we made a list. Look at this. Love is patient. Love requires patience. Love requires that I move at your pace rather than requiring you to move at mine. Love is kind. Love requires kindness. You guys know what kindness is? I, I read it the other day to find this. Kindness is when we loan others our strength rather than reminding them of their weaknesses. Let me say it again. Kindness is when we loan others our strength rather than reminding them of their weaknesses. Love does not envy Love requires us to, to keep envy and pride from interfering with our ability to celebrate the success of others. Love is never threatened by the success of others. Next on the list, love does not dishonor others. Love requires us to show honor to others. Love never treats another person dishonorably, disgracefully, or indecently. Love is not self-seeking. Love requires selflessness. Love is forever putting the interests and needs of others first. This next one's hard for me. Love is not easily angered. Love requires us to address our anger privately rather than allowing it to, to spill out on the people around us. Love isn't easily stirred up or, or provoked. Instead, love absorbs the, the, the bumps and the tension that others might inflict on us. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love requires us to forgive. Keeps no record of wrongs. It doesn't need explanations. It doesn't need to hold trials to determine how right we are or how wrong the other person is. It just forgives. Love does not delight in evil, but, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. 
Here's what I'm seeing in all these. Love requires us to see and believe the best while choosing to downplay the rest. Love chooses a generous explanation when others don't meet our expectations, all right? I, I had a mentor friend of mine who had a term for this, and I love it. He defined it as relational generosity. Relational generosity. Do you get that? Just as we can be generous with our money and we can tip really well and, and give to others a second thought, just how we can be generous with our time or our wisdom, we can stop to, to help others or, or teach others. It's doing the same thing with our relational effort. It's going the extra mile. It's believing the best in others. It's filling the gap at all times with kindness and, and understanding even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. So when, when you or I are at a decision point about how to act in a relationship or how to respond to others in a relationship, this is your checklist. This is your checklist. This is the passage that we're going to go back to when we're asking ourselves what love requires of us. Well, that's, that's quite the list of requirements, huh? It almost kind of makes you want to say, well, four out of five isn't bad. Skip this last one, that's okay, right? But that's just the thing. You see, you and I can skip this question, and life can remain the same for us. Or we can start asking this question honestly. We can put in the action it requires of us, and we can watch things around us change dramatically. We, we, you and I can continually go back to 2 Corinthians 13 and we can remind ourselves of what love requires of us and we can take action. I've seen this in action. Maybe you have too. If you've ever been able to, to witness a really good partnership, right? A relationship where, where both parties did this exceptionally well with each other. Maybe, maybe it was personal. Maybe it was a marriage or a friendship that, that worked well and, and never cratered. All because both participants knew what love required of them and did it. Maybe it was a professional partnership where, where both sides trusted each other and he intentionally uh, put in the work so that both partners believed the best about each other and didn't act out of suspicion and jealousy. And then you saw what, what they were able to achieve with that harmony and what was produced out of a partnership like that. I'm willing to bet that you've seen in your own life the, the sort of hurt and brokenness that comes when you, when you don't use this question. When you don't ask this question to, to probe your heart and, and inform your actions. Will you do something for me? I, will, you, will you think back to the last serious like relational conflict you experienced in your workplace or with a friend? Maybe you ruined it by not trusting, but by not believing the best. What, what if you and your supervisor, your, your partner, your friend, what if you had both approached the conversation having pre-decided to protect the relationship and not to dishonor the other party? Would there have been a different tone? Different outcome? Yeah, probably. Th think back to your most recent conflict with a, a family member or a significant other. With a tone and the temperature of that conversation have been different 
if both parties had committed to not be self-seeking and to protect the relationship at all costs. You see, pre-deciding to, to protect the integrity of a relationship redefines what it means to win. Love doesn't seek to win the argument. Love seeks to protect the relationship. Let me say it again. Love doesn't seek to win the argument. Love seeks to protect the relationship. So as we close this morning, I'm going to ask this question. What does love require of you? What does love require of you? For some of you sitting here today or maybe you're joining us online, it might be requiring you to, to leave here today and apologize to, to the person in your life who you didn't believe the best about. It might require you to, to pick up the phone today and, and start rebuilding a bridge that you would burn down. And, and check this out. You might have been in the right, but being right is not what love required of you. You may need to write a letter, rewrite an email, invite the other person to coffee. And here's the thing. The other person, they might not be interested in what love requires of you. They might not have any interest in what love requires of them either. I warned you. But, but this is how we make the world better. And, and if we're honest... This is how we want to be treated by others. So, so that's the question that we're going to ask of ourselves. Would you stand? You know, we spent these, these past five weeks uh, asking questions that, that steer us towards a good, healthy life, free of regrets. And I, and I want to close this week in, in this series by, by taking a moment to, to worship together. Invited Kate back up to, to lead us in this hymn that talks about us recognizing how deep and how incredible our God's love is for us. See, this desire for a good life, it's not just a thing that we want. God wants this life for us. God wants this life for us because he loves us. Remember? That's what started this whole thing our awareness of his love for us. And my prayer for us, Crosswinds, is as, as we sing together and then, and then leave this place and head into our week, is that we can constantly be, be living and acting and speaking and responding out of a deep awareness of how much we've been loved. Would, would you take this moment and sing with us as, as Kate leads us in this song?